0: So we're very happy to have Mr. Eugenides here. Uh, he was born in Detroit and attended Brown and Stanford universities. Uh, his first uh, uh, novel, *The Virgin Suicide*, was published by Farrar, Straus and Giroux to great acclaim in 1993, and his second novel, *Middlesex*, won a little prize called the Pulitzer. So uh, we're very happy to have him here, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Jeffrey Eugenides. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for for coming out. Everyone was telling me the weather was awful here. It doesn't it doesn't seem that bad to me. I don't know. Spoiled, I think. Um, I just I'm in the staying in an old-fashioned hotel here, which is a r- real relief because last night I was in Brooklyn, and I used to live in Brooklyn. They didn't have hotels back then, as I as, as I recall. But now they have all these newfangled hotels, and last night I was in one kind of hotel where. You come in, you spend about two hours figuring out how to turn on the lights. Like the designers of the hotel would never do something so retrogressive as to have a light switch on the wall. And finally you realize the brushed aluminum panel on the side of the bed operates the lights. And if you press it, it turns on the light in the bathroom. I I still never figured out how to turn on the lights. I'm going to read for about 20 minutes and then I'm very happy to take questions. I don't need to set up the reading too much except to tell you that um, the characters involved are Madeline and Leonard. And at this point they're in college. The novel begins on graduation day and then they, they go out into the real world. And Madeline is is reading A Lover's Discourse by, by Roland Barthes. So there are a few quotes from that that book um, here, and and I'll, they're not actually in the section I'm reading, the f- the first one. So I'll I'll try to m- indicate with my voice if it's Roland Bard instead of me, um, but it might be obvious. But the first the first quote that's significant is this one. It's it says, the necessity for this book is to be found in the following consideration, that the lover's discourse is today of an extreme solitude. It was debatable whether or not Madeline had fallen in love with Leonard the first moment she'd seen him. She hadn't even known him then, and so what she'd felt was only sexual attraction, not love. Even after they'd gone out for coffee, she couldn't say that what she was feeling was anything more than infatuation. But ever since the night, when they went back to Leonard's place after watching Amarcord and started fooling around, when Madeleine found that instead of being turned off by physical stuff, the way she often was with boys, instead of putting up with that or trying to overlook it, she'd spent the entire night worrying that she was turning Leonard off. Worrying that her body wasn't good enough, or that her breath was bad from the Caesar salad she'd unwisely ordered at dinner. Worrying, too, about having suggested they order martinis because of the way Leonard had sarcastically said, Sure, martinis, we can pretend we're Salinger characters. After having had as a consequence of all this anxiety pretty much no sexual pleasure, despite the perfectly respectable session they'd put together. And after Leonard, like every guy, had immediately fallen asleep, leaving her to lie awake, stroking his head and vaguely hoping she didn't get a urinary tract infection. (laughs) Madeline asked herself if the fact that she'd just spent the whole night worrying wasn't, in fact, a surefire sign that she was falling in love. And certainly, after they'd spent the next three days at Leonard's place having sex and eating pizza, after she'd relaxed enough to be able to come at least once in a while, and finally to stop worrying so much about having an orgasm because her hunger for Leonard was in some way satisfied by his satisfaction, after she'd allowed herself to sit naked on his gross couch and to walk to the bathroom knowing he was staring at her imperfect ass, to root for food in his disgusting refrigerator, to read the brilliant half-page of philosophy paper sticking up out of his typewriter, and to hear him pee with touring force into the toilet bowl. Certainly, by the end of those three days, Madeline knew she was in love. <laughs> but that didn't mean she had to tell anyone, especially Leonard. Leonard Bankhead had a studio apartment on the third floor of a low-rent student building. The halls were full of bikes and junk mail. Stickers decorated the other tenants' doors, a fluorescent marijuana leaf, a silkscreen blondie. Leonard's door, however, was as blank as the apartment inside. In the middle of the room, a twin mattress lay beside a plastic milk crate supporting a reading lamp. There was no desk, no bookcase, not even a table, only the nasty couch with a typewriter on another milk crate in front of it. There was nothing on the walls but bits of masking tape, and in one corner a small portrait of Leonard done in pencil. The drawing showed Leonard as George Washington, wearing a tricorn hat and sheltering under a blanket at Valley Forge. The caption read, You go. I like it here. Madeline thought the handwriting looked feminine. A ficus tree endured in the corner. Leonard moved it into the sun whenever he remembered to. Madeline, taking pity on the tree, began to water it until she caught Leonard looking at her one day, his eyes narrowed with suspicion. What? she said. Nothing. Come on, what? You're watering my tree. The soil's dry. You're taking care of my tree. She stopped doing it after that. There was a tiny kitchen where Leonard brewed and reheated the gallon of coffee he drank every day. A big greasy wok sat on the stove. The most Leonard did in the way of preparing a meal, however, was to pour grape nuts into the wok with raisins. Raisins satisfied his fruit requirement. The apartment had a message. The message said, I am an orphan. Madeline's roommates, Abby and Olivia, asked her what she and Leonard did together, and she never had an answer. They didn't do anything. She came to his apartment, and they lay down on the mattress, and Leonard asked her how she was doing, really wanting to know. What did they do? She talked, he listened, then he talked, and she listened. She'd never met anyone, and certainly not a guy, who was so receptive, who took everything in. She guessed that Leonard's shrink-like manner came from years of seeing shrinks himself. And though another of her rules was to never date guys who went to shrinks, Madeline began to reconsider this prohibition, seeing shrinks himself. And though another of her rules was to never date guys who went to shrinks, Madeline began to reconsider this prohibition. Back home, she and her sister had a phrase for serious emotional talks. They called it having a heavy. If a boy approached during one, the girls would look up and give warning. We're having a heavy. And the boy would retreat until it was over, until the heavy had passed. Going out with Leonard was like having a heavy all the time. Whenever she was with him, Leonard gave her his full attention. He didn't stare into her eyes or smother her the way Billy had, but he made it clear he was available. He offered little advice, only listened and murmured reassuringly. People often fell in love with their shrinks, didn't they? That was called transference and it was to be avoided. But what if you were already sleeping with your shrink? What if your shrink's couch was already a bed? And, plus, it wasn't all heavy, the heavies. Leonard was funny. He told hilarious stories in a deadpan voice. His head sank into his shoulders. His eyes filled with rue as his sentences drawled on. Did I ever tell you I play an instrument? The summer my parents got divorced. They sent me to live with my grandparents in Buffalo. The people next door were Latvian, the Breverises and they both played the kokel. Do you know what a kokel is? It's, uh, it's sort of like a zither, but latvian. Anyway, I used to hear Mr. and Mrs. Breveris playing their kokels over in the next yard. It was an amazing sound, sort of wild and overstimulated on one hand, but melancholy on the other. The kokel is the manic depressive of the string family. I was bored to death that summer. I was 16, 6 foot 1, 138 pounds and a major reefer smoker. I used to get high in my bedroom and blow the smoke out the window and then I'd go down to the porch and listen to the Breveresses playing next door. Sometimes other people came over, other cocoa players. They set up lawn chairs in the backyard and they'd all sit there playing together. It was an orchestra, a kokel orchestra. Then one day they saw me watching and invited me over and I asked Mr. Breveris how you played a cocoa and he started giving me lessons. I used to go over there every day. They had an old cocoa they let me borrow. I used to practice five, six hours a day. I was into it. At the end of that summer when I had to leave, the Breverises gave me the cocoa to keep. I took it on the plane with me. I got a separate seat for it, like I was Rostropovich. And when I got home, I kept on practicing. I got good enough that I joined this band. We used to play at ethnic festivals and Orthodox weddings. Me and all the adults. Most of them were Latvians, some Russians too. Our big number was Ochichornia. That's the only thing that saved me in high school. The Kokol. Do you still play? Hell no. Are you kidding? The cocoa? (laughs) Listening to Leonard, Madeline felt impoverished by her happy childhood. She never wondered why she acted the way she did or what effect her parents had had on her personality. Being fortunate had dulled her powers of observation. Whereas Leonard noticed every little thing. For instance, they spent a weekend on Cape Cod And as they were driving back, Leonard said, what do you do? Just hold it? What? You just hold it for two days until you get back home. As his meaning seeped in, she said, I can't believe you. You have never, ever taken a dump in my presence. In your presence? When I am present or nearby, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? Nothing. If you're talking about I sleep over and go off to class the next morning, and then you go take a dump, that's understandable. But when we spend two, almost three, days together eating surf and turf, and you do not take a dump the entire time, I can only conclude that you are more than a little anal. (laughs) So what? It's embarrassing, Madeline said. Okay, I find it embarrassing. Leonard stared at her without expression and said, Do you mind when I take a dump? Do we have to talk about this? It's sort of gross. I think we do need to talk about it. Because you're obviously not very relaxed around me. And I am, or thought I was, your boyfriend. And that means, or should mean, that I'm the person you're most relaxed around. Leonard equals maximum relaxation. Guys weren't supposed to be the talkers. Guys weren't supposed to get you to open up, but this guy was, this guy did. He'd said he was her boyfriend, too. He'd made it official. I'll try to be more relaxed, Madeline said, if it'll make you happy. But in terms of excretion, don't get your hopes up. (laughs) This isn't for me, Leonard said. This is for Mr. Lower Intestine. This is for Mr. Duodenum. Even though this kind of amateur therapy didn't exactly work, after that last conversation, for instance, Madeline had more, not less, trouble going number two if Leonard was within a mile, it affected Madeleine deeply. <laughs> Leonard was examining her closely. She felt handled in the right way, like something precious or immensely fascinating. It made her happy to think about how much he thought about her. By the end of April, Madeline and Leonard had gotten into a routine of spending every night together. On weeknights, after Madeline finished studying, she headed over to the biology lab where she'd find Leonard staring at slides with two Chinese grad students. After she finally got Leonard to leave the lab, Madeline then had to cajole him into sleeping at her place. At first, Leonard had liked staying at the Narragansett. He liked the ornate moldings and the view from her bedroom. He charmed Olivia and Abby by making pancakes on Sunday mornings. But soon Leonard began to complain that they always stayed at Madeline's place, and then he never got to wake up in his own bed. Staying at Leonard's place, however, required Madeline to bring a fresh set of clothes each night. And since he didn't like her to leave clothes at his place, and to be honest, she didn't like to either because whatever she left picked up a fusty smell. Madeline had to carry her dirty clothes around to classes all day. She preferred sleeping at her own apartment where she could use her own shampoo, conditioner, and loofah, and where it was clean sheet day every Wednesday. Leonard never changed his sheets. They were a disturbing gray color. (laughs) Dust balls clung to the edges of the mattress. One morning, Madeline was horrified to see a calligraphic smear of blood that had leaked from her three weeks earlier, a stain she'd attacked with the kitchen sponge while Leonard was sleeping. You never wash your sheets, she complained. I wash them, Leonard said evenly. How often? When they get dirty. They're always dirty. Not everyone can drop off their laundry at the cleaners every week, Madeline. Not everybody grew up with clean sheet day. You don't have to drop them off, Madeline said, undeterred. You got, you've got a washer in the basement. I use the washer, Leonard said. Just not every Wednesday. I don't equate dirt with death and decay. Oh, well, and I do. I'm obsessed with death because I wash my sheets. People's attitudes to cleanliness have a lot to do with their fear of death. This isn't about death, Leonard. This is about crumbs in the bed. This is about the fact that your pillow smells like a liverwurst sandwich. Wrong. It does. Wrong. Smell it, Leonard. (laughs) It's salami. I don't like liverwurst. To a certain extent, this kind of arguing was fun, but then came nights when Madeleine forgot to pack a change of clothes, and Leonard accused her of doing this on purpose in order to force him to sleep at her place. Next, more worryingly, came nights when Leonard said he was going home to study and would see her tomorrow. He began pulling all-nighters. One of his philosophy professors offered Leonard the use of his cabin in the Berkshires, and for an entire rainy weekend, Leonard went there alone to write a paper on Fichte, returning with a typescript 123 pages long and wearing a bright orange hunter's vest. The vest became his favorite item of clothing. He wore it all the time. He started finishing Madeline's sentences, as if her mind was too slow as if he couldn't wait for her to gather her thoughts. He riffed on the things she said, going off on strange tangents, making puns. Whenever she told him he needed to get some sleep, he got angry and didn't call her for days. And it was during this period that Madeline fully understood how the lover's discourse was of an extreme solitude. The solitude was extreme because it wasn't physical. It was extreme because you felt it while in the company of the person you loved. It was extreme because it was in your head, that most solitary of places. The more Leonard pulled away, the more anxious Madeline became. The more desperate she became, the more Leonard pulled away. She told herself to act cool. She went to the library to work on her marriage plot thesis. But the sex-fantasy atmosphere, the reading room eye contact, the beckoning stacks, made her desperate to see Leonard. And so, against her will, her feet began leading her back across campus through the darkness to the biology department. Up to the last moment, Madeline had the crazy hope that this expression of weakness might, in fact, be strength. It was a brilliant strategy because it lacked all strategy. It involved no games, only sincerity. Seeing such sincerity, how could Leonard fail to respond? She was almost happy as she came up behind the lab table and tapped Leonard on the shoulder. And her happiness lasted until he turned around with a look not of love, but annoyance. It didn't help that it was spring. Every day, people seemed more and more unclothed. The magnolia trees, budding on the green, looked positively inflamed. They sent out a perfume that drifted through the windows of Semiotics 211. The magnolia trees hadn't read Roland Barthes. They didn't think love was a mental state. The magnolias insisted it was natural, perennial. On a beautiful, warm May day, Madeline showered, shaved her legs with extra care, and put on her first spring dress. An apple green baby doll dress with a bib collar and a high hem. Her bare legs, toned from a winter of squash playing, were pale but smooth. She kept her glasses on, left her hair loose, and walked over to Leonard's apartment on Planet Street. On the way, she stopped at a market to buy a hunk of cheese, some stoned wheat thins, and the front door of Leonard's building was propped open with a brick. So she went up to his apartment and knocked. Leonard opened the door. He looked like he'd been napping. Nice dress, he said. They never made it to the park. They picnicked on each other. As Leonard pulled her toward the mattress, Madeline dropped her packages, hoping the wine bottle didn't break. She slipped her dress over her head. Soon, they were naked, raiding. it felt like, a huge basket of goodies. Madeline lay on her stomach, her side, her back, nibbling all the treats, the nice-smelling fruit candies, the meaty drumsticks, as well as more sophisticated offerings, the biscotti flavored with anise, the wrinkly truffles, the salty spoonfuls of olive tapenade. She'd never been so busy in her life. At the same time, she felt strangely displaced, not quite her usual tidy ego, but merged with Leonard into a great, big, protoplasmic, ecstatic thing. She thought she'd been in love before. She knew she'd had sex before, but all those torrid, adolescent gropings, all those awkward backseat romps, The meaningful, performative summer nights with her high school boyfriend, Jim McManus. Even the tender sessions with Billy, where he insisted they look into each other's eyes as they came. None of that prepared her for the wallop, the all-consuming pleasure of this. Leonard was kissing her. When she could bear no more, Madeline grabbed him savagely by his ears. She pulled Leonard's head away and held it still to show him the evidence of how she felt. She was crying now. In a hoarse voice, edged with something else, a sense of peril, Madeline said, I love you. Leonard stared back at her. His eyebrows twitched. Suddenly, he rolled sideways off the mattress. He stood up and walked naked across the room. Crouching, he reached into her bag and pulled out a lover's discourse from the pocket where she always kept it. He flipped the pages until he found the one he wanted. Then he returned to the bed and handed the book to her. I love you, je t'aime, I love you. As she read these words, Madeline was flooded with happiness. She glanced up at Leonard, smiling. With his finger, he motioned for her to keep going. The figure refers not to the declaration of love, to the avowal, but to the repeated utterance of the love cry. Suddenly, Madeline's happiness diminished, usurped by the feeling of peril. She wished she weren't naked. She narrowed her shoulders and covered herself with the bedsheet as she obediently read on. Once the first vowel has been made, I love you has no meaning whatever. Leonard, squatting, had a smirk on his face. It was then that Madeline threw the book at his head. Thank you. So I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has. I will I will call and I will repeat that question so that it's on the podcast. I think, right? Okay. So, if there are any. Yes. How do I like having you stop making the movies? How do I like? Well, it depends on. It depends, of course. Um, I saw Steven Sondheim give a talk a week ago. And he was talking about the adaptation of Sweeney Todd. And he's very happy with, with that adaptation, which surprised some people in the audience. But the reason he was happy with it is that um, Tim Burton took certain liberties that made it a better film than, he, than it might have been had he been completely faithful to the material. So what I, what, I, what I think about adaptations of film is that a film is already radically different than a book. And what you want is for the film that is inspired by your book to be the best f- kind of film it could be. And when you're dealing with a different medium, sometimes that means rearranging things, cutting things, being aware that that you're you're no longer writing a, a prose narrative. Um, and this is the this is this description and everything is a way of avoiding your, <laughs> avoiding answering your question. But that's what I would think about if someone was was adapting. One of my books is that you, you just want it to be a, a good film. I, I wouldn't demand a kind of fidelity that would actually actually rob it of, of, of being dr- dramatic on the screen. Um, they're extremely different, different um, animals. I've had two, two made. One was a short story um, that was turned in the movie, The Switch, and my, my short story was maybe the first 30 minutes of the film, and then they wrote more, more story. And my story was about an ugly guy who is in love with a beautiful woman, and they they ended up casting Jason Bateman, who's not sufficiently ugly. <laughs> so they decided to make him neurotic. And that was, you know, their their choice. So that, that changed my idea. That's and I wouldn't want my ideas to be to be changed necessarily. Um, you 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 want it to be the same the same themes and, and the same basic story. Um, and then with The Virgin Suicides, Sophia was extremely faithful to the, to the spirit of the book and, and, and really the structure of the book. So that there weren't any kinds of violations like that. But of course, just making it visual changes it hugely because in, in The Virgin Suicides, it's this first person plural voice, this we voice, talking about these girls and the girls are unknowable and the the narrator is, is unreliable. So you're never sure what, what, you know, you're never sure if what they're saying about the girls is valid. But when it's a movie and you have Kirsten Dunst and these other actresses playing those girls, it, it takes on a reality that the audience can only believe this must be the truth, this must actually be what the girls are like. So it shifts the it shifts the um, the point of view toward the girls and away from the boys. Fairly unavoidable and not, as I, you know, to go back to... The, beginning of my, my answer, not something I would oppose, because you really have to be aware that it's going to change anyway. So you just have to change it in the best way you can. Yes? Just science the science, um, and under or I, the only si- I, ask yeah. I ask that because it seems mm-hmm. like both in terms of concept and language that a lot of these things seem to be very handy for you,
1: that you have an ease around writing around biology and, and um, creating this kind of imagery with it.
0: The question is if I studied um, science, I I took AP biology, so I I got a a college credit in biology. (laughs) And as you can see, most of my topics have to do with biology or genetics, not physics and not chemistry, um, which I couldn't write about. Um, And I've always been interested in biology and read Stephen Jay Gould and, and Leonard in this book is a, a great admirer of Stephen Jay Gould, so that's the one science that I know a little bit about. I don't know much, and it's, this book has a lot of yeast genetics in it. And um, I was trying to figure out what it's like to do yeast genetics work, and I'm, I teach at Princeton now, so I was at dinner with some scientists, and I said, who can I talk to for yeast genetics? And he, he gave me two names, and one of them was this guy David Botstein. And I made an appointment with him, and I went over to... To his lab and it's it's incredible lab I mean just built leading you know leading um, research is being done there and he doesn't really understand why I'm there, who I am and I start asking him about this, this yeast study from the 80s that I, that I use in the book and he starts explaining it and writing out all the everything on the board. And I finally had to tell him, I I don't really need that. I kind of understand that, but I want to know, like, what do people do in a lab if they're kind of a flunky, like they're not really at the top? And he just couldn't understand that what I needed to know was how to cast a gel tray and how to do electrophoresis and all these things. So he finally took me into the lab where the other people were working. He goes, I've got a novelist here. And it was like he, it's it's like he said, I've got a cobbler. He's, st- he's making shoes by hand. You know, uh, what, uh, he just couldn't understand, so I, he left finally. I mean, it turns out he's the leading yeast geneticist in the whole country, and I'm asking him these really dumb questions. It's like, like going to Einstein and saying, Could you, can you balance my checkbook for me? It's crazy. And, and finally, the other people were happy enough to tell me what, you know, what Leonard, in this case, would be doing if he was hired by a, by a, a big shot scientists to, to do the lab work. So what makes you interested in speaking from sorry I'm behind the okay. what makes you interested in um or sensitive to speaking from a girl or what makes me sensitive or interested in speaking from a female point of view? Um well there are a lot of them. Um <laughs> In the world, and it seems like it would be hard to write about the world um, without without um, trying to write from the point of view of half of the population. Um, I guess that's that's why I've never felt um, a, a strange. I mean, Cormac McCarthy says he never writes female characters because he doesn't understand them. Um, so that's it's always smart if you can't do something, not you know, not to try to do it. But um, if you're interested. Um, I, I start with the premise that, it's, it, that men and women are not so different that you can't understand um, each other's um, ex- experience. And usually, I write about women who are closer to the kind of woman I would have been had I, had I been born female. And um, it probably gets harder and harder the further you go from um, your, you know, your upbringing and maybe your education level and things like that. But so that certainly can be done as well. Just takes more, maybe more skill. Um, but that's, that's why I mean the novels that I love like Anna Karenina um, you know you love them because of Tolstoy's ability to go into Anna's Anna's head it's something that um, and the Portrait of a Lady you know these are the novels that kind of inspired a, a great bit of, of this book um, and those were my favorite novels so it just it just led naturally that I would try to also do that a bit yes right here what else is- um, well, it really started with this one line on page 19 that is um, Madeline's love troubles began at the time the French theory she was reading deconstructed the very notion of love and when I wrote that sentence I got the idea for this book because it was about a woman who's in, who's in college and she's she's reading all these structuralists and, and deconstructionists and she's she's realizing that Romance is a social construct and it's a kind of illusion and that we're she's trying to Anatomize um, um, Love and be kind of intellectual about it at the same time She's falling hopelessly in love with her boyfriend Which I think is a a common predicament where we understand something Intellectually and yet emotionally we can't quite quite go there Um, so that's that's what inspired the book and all of all of my college reading and the, and the, and the, all the classes I remembered at at Brown, particularly in and, and the heyday of semiotics, um, came 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 back to me. And I hadn't written about it, and it seemed like there hadn't been a lot written about it. And that's really what inspired it. And then the second wave came. Thinking about the, the marriage plot traditionally and what it means in the English novel, I'm talking about from Jane Austen through through Henry James. These these novels that really are as the foundational plot of the of the English novel, a young woman um, seeking a husband, um, seeking a husband of of sufficient good looks and and money and all the things that go go into that. And so many um, great novels have that plot, and then as the 19th century went along, those I mean, those are comedies, basically, because most of Austen's books end with a wedding. So that's a, that's a comedy. But as the 19th century proceeds, you get darker portraits of marriage, where you, you follow the heroine into, you know, past her wedding, into her married life. And Middlemarch is that way. She marries this old pet in Casabon and and um, how terrible it is you know to be married to to this fellow and they become darker and, 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 and more tragic. So all of those novels um, can't be written anymore because divorces so easily come by uh, or you could have a prenuptial agreement. Like Isabel Archer, if she had a prenup, wouldn't have any problem with Gilbert Osmond. she just have the prenup and he wouldn't get any of her money. So you can't write these novels anymore. And I was. You know, I was feeling sorry for myself as a contemporary novelist, not being able to access the greatest plot that the novel has come up with. So I thought, how can you write a marriage plot that would be true about conditions today, sexually, politically, um, um, morally, religiously, and all of that? And I realized after um, working a long time that the marriage plot still functions, but it now functions in our own heads. We have these romantic. Um, expectations from reading 19th century novels and from seeing movies with Cary Grant in them. And um, even though we are at liberty to get divorced, um, we, still, we still have this romantic um, ideal that sometimes works out and some, sometimes doesn't, but it does influence a lot of our choices. So the characters in this, Mitchell and Madeline, they, they, they are both struggling with this kind of thing and have the marriage plot in their heads. Yes?
1: Uh, all of the characters, I've like, read this, and I've read, of course, your discipline. And from what I hear of are leaving now, in all sense, uh, the characters seem to have amazing uh, insights and sensitivity uh, about their own mind and their own thoughts and their own feelings. Uh, I mean, to an extraordinary extent. Um, what was your evolution as a person as a writer to acquire that kind of sensitivity toward the inner life of characters that makes them really believable? I mean, it, it seems, you know, it seems to me that I mean, he's a person who has the of great imagination. Would have to have a lot of understanding of themselves?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. You know, Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the question is um, essentially, how did I develop um, my means of characterization in, in my books? And the answer is slowly um, the, the virgin suicides I almost avoided doing it entirely the The girls um, aren 't really known, and you never go in their heads and I, I, I was a younger writer then, and I think i didn 't have the capacity. To, to write characters, so like Cormac McCarthy I, I didn't make myself do things that, that I couldn't do and that was in some ways you know a book I could I could write that voice and I could inhabit the boys or the the, the the middle-aged men who are remembering their their teenage years fine so and then with Middlesex, I began to start to create characters but that, that book is heavily plotted and I was teaching myself to plot a very complicated story with lots of repetitions and surprises and I was little by little, creating characters and going into people's minds. With this book, I gave myself, um, you know, I I wanted to go deeper into characterization. Each time you finish a book, it leads to your next book. And you always finish with a sense of accomplishment, but also a sense of failure. And the the failure makes you do do your next book. So what I wanted was to have my characters come to the fore in this book. And so the language is, is less showy than my other books, and it calls attention to itself less, and that allows the the characters to come out more, at least at least that's what that's what I hoped. And in doing that, I spend a lot more time describing their thoughts. The hardest thing about writing contemporary fiction is describing people's mental states and their emotional states without using language that sounds like a nineteenth century novel. And I had a lot of misfires with this book because I was picking up, qualities of, of a 19th century novel because I was trying to create n- characters on the same on the same scale, but I didn't want the language to sound that way. And for a while, the novel, it was like a, a, a couch you got from the flea market. It smelled, you know, it smelled like mothballs. And when I hit that sentence about Madeline deconstructing love, the, the prose changed and I found a connection to my own life and, and my, own, my own times. And, and, I, and I, I stayed with that. And a lot of the, the old mannerisms started to fall out of the book. And I found my way into, into my, my characters. Yes? Um, this may be more of like a workshop question, but when you are writing your book, mm-hmm. do you have like a daily routine? Or like how do you go, like what's your process? Uh-huh. And also, you have about like a decade. Of do so you writing for that entire time, or do you take time off? Um, the question is, do I ever work? Do I ever work at my writing? No. Um, the, the, the question is, what's my routine in general? And um, my routine is to work every day that I can write and to stay at my desk most of the time. I talk about this German con- concept, Sitzfleisch, which is the the flesh on, on, your, on your backside that you have to develop in order to be a scholar or, or, or a writer. And the Germans believe in Sitzfleisch, and that's what I believe in it too. So even if I can't write well, which is most days, I, I, I stay there and I try to write at least something. Um, and I usually write quite a, quite a bit every day, despite, um, despite the fact that I'm not Joyce Carol Oates. I'm actually writing as many words as she is. I'm just keeping not so many because she can do it better than I can. And so I throw out a lot and little by little, um, finally finish, finish my books. But my, my advice for, for writers is to get in a daily routine. Um, I wrote my first book at night, two hours a night and four hours on the weekend, because I had a nine to five job. And, and now I can write full time mainly. So I spend most of the day writing. Um, and that is constrained by having a family and my daughter coming home. Otherwise, I would probably start at 11 and, and work till 9 at night or something like that. I know when I go to Berlin, I have a, a great, um, the perfect thing is to get up at 11, stay up till 9, have dinner with your friends at 9 till about midnight, then go to sleep and then get up late and, and do it again. I can, I can do that for, forever, but it's only one month in the summer that I usually can manage that. Over here. I, yeah. I have a question similar uh-huh. to his. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you mentioned last night you were in New York in a hotel. Yeah. Today you're in L.A. Mm-hmm. How do you write when you travel? Like, do you, you
0: don't. Do you, you don't write on book tour at all. I mean, if you, <laughs> what you hope to do is shower. And um, but it's very busy every day, just the traveling and then the readings and interviews and the, and the time. So I, I don't write. But um, you know, is that it? Okay. One more. Oh no. What, this. You have your idea. I I have a book of short stories that's almost finished, so that'll come out um, in a year or two. And then I have another idea for a novel, but I I have to do some research on it to see if it's possible and and see if I can do it. I think I have one, but I'm not sure. Okay, one last one. Um, So, how... Well, I, you know, I started early writing in school and, and liked it. And I remember being given assignments, right, you know, finish the story, they would give you the, f- the first half of the story and you had to finish it. And I remember... Like um, middle, middle school, I remember doing that, liking that. And I even remember writing stories in elementary school and enjoying it a lot. Um, and then got serious about it or decided that's what I wanted to be when I was about 15 or 16. Um, and what was the second part, Is there? Oh yeah, I, d- I, I, I did write, um, I've written about five novels that I haven't published, um, not complete novels, but 150 pages of a novel that didn't work. That's happened repeatedly <laughs> to me. And um, finally I finished one, and that was The Virgin Suicide. So in a way it wasn't my first novel, but it was the first one I finished. Okay, thanks so much for coming tonight.